Let's start by reading verse 1 of 3 John. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. And we're just going to pause right there and do a little introduction for this book. 3 John was written, we believe, by the Apostle John. And I know you have the name John on the page that you're looking at right now up there at the top. But you'll notice that in the actual text, it does not have his name, John. It just says, the elder to the beloved Gaius. And as I said last week, you can go back to the previous week if you want to know a little bit more about this. John rarely names himself in his writings. He referred to himself as the elder in the last book. In the Gospel of John, he called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, all three epistles of John, and the book of Revelation. One of the sons of Zebedee, one of the fishermen that helped Peter haul in the catch of fish when Jesus miraculously multiplied it. You remember that. And we know that this is John, not just because, you know, it says there in your English Bible, 3 John, but because there's well-established church tradition. These books were stored together from very, very early on. Like you didn't find 1 John without 2nd and John attached to them because people knew they were all by the same guy. And as you read through them, you can see the similarities between the different letters. You'll even see it tonight, how similar 3rd John is to what he said in 2nd John, which we just studied through. 1st John is the same way, the Gospel of John as well. Even the book of Revelation, which is a totally different genre style of book, you can still see John's style in there. And so that's how we're able to identify it. And the letter is written to a man named Gaius. There are a few people named Gaius in the New Testament, a very common Roman name. Gaius was the name of various emperors and was used a lot. This may or may not have been the Gaius that we meet in Acts 19 and 20. Paul had a traveling companion in Macedonia named Gaius. Could have been a different Gaius. There are a lot of Johns in the Bible, a lot of Simons. There's a few Gaiuses, and they didn't really use last names, and we don't have any other kind of identifying marker for him. So we don't know who he was other than he was beloved by the Apostle John. Now, when John wrote this letter, as I've said before, John was an old man. In the Gospel of John, he was the youngest apostle, traditionally. No reason to doubt that. We know he lived into his 90s. And you can really tell in some of his letters, especially 1 John, there's a grandfatherly tone that he takes with these people. One of the sons of thunder is now calling people beloved. So he's, he's grown up, he's matured in the Lord, and he's an older man. He was the only apostle who did not die a martyr's death. Although, to be fair to Rome, this was not for lack of trying. They tried to boil him alive in hot oil. The Lord preserved him. They sent him away uh, to be deserted and marooned on, a, on an island called Patmos, which was a rocky volcanic island. Eventually, he was released, and he became, after that, the elder of the church in Ephesus. Now, as John got older, we mentioned last time, he's beginning to see the generations replace his generation. He's seeing new leaders come up, men like Timothy and Mark, who were the young bucks during the early days of the church. These are now seasoned saints, and some of them have already given their lives for the Lord. And their disciples, men like Papias, men like Clement, men like Ignatius, are beginning to take a more prominent place in the church. And in the church, they, they valued at this point, this is such a unique thing in church history if you look this up, they really valued something that was called the living voice. They would say, yeah, the scripture is great, the New Testament is great, but I prefer to hear the living voice. That is, I love talking to people that actually knew Jesus. Very, very cool. Something that we do not have access to. It's exclusive to that generation. 
But John is now living in a time where he is realizing that before long, there's going to be nobody else that knew Jesus directly. And the apostles at this point, I mean, these guys were legends, man, in a good way. They were legends that the church was following and obeying and imitating, and now they're going to be gone. And you know how it goes. The farther removed you get from a valued leader, people begin to criticize and say, well, you're not living up to who John was or Peter or Paul or Jesus or Apollos or whoever. And many in the church would have been wondering, well, what are we going to do? Who are we going to look to? Who's going to lead us? And for our part, we have the same question. Who do we look to as our example? And we look to this letter to answer that question. In verse 11 of this book, John is going to tell Gaius to imitate what is good. Imitate what is good. That Greek word is mimeomai. It's where we get the word mimic or memory comes from the same root word. And he's telling Gaius to imitate or mimic what is good. Have you ever watched videos online of the mimic octopus? The mimic octopus is probably the strangest animal that God ever created. It's an octopus, right? Eight legs, lives on the bottom of the ocean. But there are all these videos that when it realizes that somebody is close, it will try and hide to protect itself by pretending to be another animal. The mimic octopus will change its shape and its color to look like something else. It'll pull itself down into a hole and just let one of its tentacles come up so it looks like a sea snake. It'll bunch itself up and play its tentacles out behind it and kind of go backwards like this so that it looks like a lionfish. There's even one that like bunched itself up and put down these two little legs and was walking and they thought it might have been imitating one of the divers that was following it. It's the craziest thing. It brings all of its legs together and just wiggles the back tail and looks like a stingray and like it swells itself up. It's really, it's wild to look at. And this is what John is telling Gaius and us to do, to mimic, to imitate what is good. As people, we naturally look for somebody to imitate or somebody to mimic our lives after. When you're little, maybe this is your siblings. You've got a big brother who's just the coolest dude you've ever met. And so you start talking like him. You start trying to dress like him. Sisters will do this, right? The younger sister is always coming in and stealing the older sister's clothes because she wants to look just like her. She wants to be just like her. We do this with actors in our lives. You ever met somebody that you can tell that they're trying to make themselves look like an actor that they've seen on TV. I've got a couple people that I will not name in my life that have done exactly that. And you think that it's all fine, and then all of a sudden you see that actor, and you're like, oh, that's what they're doing. They're trying to be that guy. Or somebody that's really funny, and then all of a sudden you watch the same show that they watch, and you realize they're not funny. They're just really good at remembering jokes. Even when you're a musician, you try to imitate what another musician does and you end up with a blend of styles and then eventually you can start branching out and doing your own thing but this is what we do we naturally try to imitate other people and you might say i don't imitate anybody i'm my own person i'm not influenced by anybody yeah we love to say that but a lot of times people who say i don't imitate anybody usually have a group of friends that all also say they don't imitate anybody and in order to show how different they are they all dress exactly the same it's the craziest thing we imitate people. And if you don't know who you're imitating, or if you don't know what you've picked up from somebody, ask your friends. Ask somebody who's known you for a long time. If you've ever seen a couple that started dating or got married, they start using the same phrases. They start using the same tonality in their voice, the way they speak, the way it goes up and down. 
you ever seen a couple that's been married for a really, really long time, they even start to look alike. It's the weirdest thing. I don't know why that is, but they do. Now, obviously, as believers, we know this is true, but we are to take hold of that and not just let it happen. Not just follow after whoever we think might be cool or interesting, but to model our lives after the right things. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 says to be imitators of God as beloved children. Little kids who are well-loved will imitate their parents. My kids will imitate me. I'll hear them say things or do things or I'll watch them do things. I'm like, oh, that's me. And Paul says, do that for your heavenly father. Paul encourages us in 1 Corinthians 4, 16 and 11, verse 1. He says, follow my example. I'm imitating Christ. Come and imitate me. Finding a good example is essential to your spiritual growth. And in 3 John, we're going to be given two good examples and one bad example of who to imitate. And I hope that we can learn tonight what kind of person and what kind of behavior we ought to be imitating. So we've got there our introduction. We know what we're looking for as we go through. Now let's read verses 2 through 4. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. This is a nice little introduction. Personal notes. Good to start a letter off with a personal note. Business letters don't do that. You just say to whom it may concern and you dive right in. With a personal letter, you want to give a compliment to the person you're talking to, reconnect with that relationship. And this is what John does with Gaius. He's asking how he's doing. I hope you're healthy. I hope your soul is well. I hope life's going good. And this is a pastoral concern that John had. He liked to take care of the people that he was leading. 1 John 3.18, he told the people he was writing to, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's not enough for us to be loved by Jesus because if his love has truly found us, it's going to overflow towards one another. And John tells us, and he exemplifies it here in this passage, don't just talk the talk. you got to really love people. It's unfortunate that a lot of our talk is cheap. You know, it's surfacy. It's not really significant. We ask each other how we're doing, but we don't really want to know. And here's the thing. I'm going to give us half a compliment, but also half a criticism here. We often don't want to go too deep when we know somebody's not doing well. Not because we don't care. Because if we were to be exposed to the need, we would respond to the need. But we know that if I flip under, over that rock, I know what I'm going to see, and I'm going to have to do something about it. And I don't want to have to do that, so we're just going to keep it right here. You ever not check your bank account because you know what's going to be in there? Like, I just know it's not good. What do I want to look at that for? It's the strangest thing how we do that. Or if you've been trying to work out and you fell off the wagon for a couple days and the scale is sitting there staring at you. It's like, I'm not doing that. I know what it's going to tell me. We can be like that with each other. We don't want to ask the deep questions because we know if we go under that rock, there's something to see and it's got to be dealt with. We don't want to have to care. And we know that that's not right. And we know that that's no good. You know it's no good to ignore your bank statement and you know that it's no good to ignore your brothers and sisters in Christ. We ought to love one another practically, not to leave things under the surface. When we come together as a church, whether that's digitally or in person, that ought to be the chance where we can 
have those things addressed. You know, if you've got a problem in your life, you should be able to come to church and that's where things are going to get resolved. You should be able to have it in your mind. Oh, it's okay. We go to church in two days. There'll be somebody there that can help me. Not just somebody who can listen to you and cry with you and hug you. That might be needed. But also, there's somebody there that can take care of me. They're going to help me out. I know somebody that can give me what I need in this moment. I know somebody that can connect me with the right person. I know somebody. That's what the church is for, to be a family and a community for one another. This is what John is asking him here. He's not just saying, hello, how are you? That's great. Now here's what I need. He's saying, hey, I hope it's all going well for you. How's your health? How's everything? And there's an interesting little prayer that he has here. He prays for Gaius that your health would be as it goes well with your soul. Isn't that something? Let me ask you a question. We've talked about this before, so I won't spend too long on it. How would you be doing physically if your health was tied to your faith? What about if your blood pressure was tied to your prayer life? <laughs> what if your heartbeat was tied to how much of your Bible you've read lately? Everyone's like, well, I'm really glad God doesn't do that. Yes, me too. I really am. That's just something to consider and think about that and maybe meditate on that tomorrow morning. How's your spiritual health? Take your spiritual temperature every once in a while and say, if this was my physical body, would I be treating it this poorly? It's an interesting little note. Now, the key quality that we see about Gaius here, and Gaius is our first good example, by the way, is his faithfulness. And he's going to describe this all the way down to, to verse 8. He's going to say in verse 5, this is a faithful thing that you do. He was faithful, first of all, though, to the truth, and it brought great joy to his spiritual father. We talked a lot about walking in the truth last week. We're not going to dive into it again. But metaphorically, to walk in something means to regulate your life that way. That is selecting your footsteps based on an idea. And that idea is aletheia. It's truth. It's the reality of who God is. Specifically, the truth that Jesus has set you free from sin, that you're no longer bound by death. And to walk in that truth means to live like that's true. And Gaius was doing this. And John was full of joy. He says in verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Gaius had been set free from sin and he was living like a free man. And John finds out, so he writes this letter. If somebody were to not see you for five years, like if you think of somebody that you were very good friends with five years ago that maybe you're not as connected with anymore. If they were to find you now, would they be able to say, oh, great, you're still walking in the truth? Or can you look back on times in your life where you were walking deeper in the truth, walking closer, walking more deliberately in the truth, and things have sort of fallen off since then? It's never too late to get it back. Being faithful to the truth, it's the most important thing. Walk in the footsteps of the gospel. And we dove into this in depth last week, so I'm not going to spend any more time on it. But I'll say, not just as a parent, but as a pastor, there's no greater joy than to see that the people in the church are walking in the truth. So that's the greeting, and we get down to verse 5. And he's still greeting, but he's moving into some instruction now. Verses 5 through 8, talking about Gaius' faithfulness. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do, in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So how did John know that Gaius was walking in the truth? Well, it was manifested in his life. How did John know that Jesus loved him? 
Because Jesus lived out love, and that was the defining thing for John. He called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Walking in the truth means walking as if you have truly been liberated from sin. You can't claim that you walk in the truth and then go your own way. That's not how it works. You know, if you've been freed from sin, people say, well, if I'm free, then why do I still got to obey all these rules? That's sort of like if you went to a, a slave that was chained to the millstone, let's say, and you come up with bolt cutters and you broke the chains and you said, run as fast as you can. He's like, hey, you can't tell me what to do. Maybe I want to sit here and keep working this millstone. And you're like, are you crazy? I just set you free. Run. He says, there you go again, telling me what to do. You think I owe you something because you set me free? That's ridiculous. If you were to stop a slave caravan going through the desert and you were to let those people go, they'd be hauling out for the horizon. They're out of there. They're not sticking around for one minute. So why do we think that with sin, we're like, well, Jesus set me free, but that doesn't mean I have to, you know, do as he says. If I'm free from sin, I should be able to do whatever I want. Galatians 5.13 says, you were called to freedom, brothers, but do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Isn't that cool? The antidote to feeding your flesh and doing what your body wants to do, being slave to your stomach. The Bible says that there are people who worship their stomach and their appetites. The antidote to that is to serve people in love. And this is what Gaius was doing. He was not using his freedom as an opportunity to feed his flesh. I'm going to heaven now. I'm going to live my life and, and party it up because I've got my fire insurance and I'm off to heaven someday. He said, no, I'm going to serve people through love. And that was the defining marker for John of how he knew Gaius was walking in the truth. It's no good to say, and this is another important point that we could talk about for a long time, to say, I'm a Christian, but anytime you disagree with what Jesus or the apostles said, you say, ah, forget it. That doesn't make you a Christian. That just means you have a lot of ideas that happen to overlap with what Jesus said. That's not the same thing as being a believer. Being a Christian means being in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Gaius understood that he had been saved. He understood that it was the love of God that reached down to save him. And so he wanted to show that same love to others, specifically by showing hospitality to the evangelists and missionaries that were going through the world at that time. As far as we can tell, Gaius was not a missionary. He was not a pastor. He was just a Christian, as far as we know. But he was doing everything that he could. Look at these verses closely again. He said, you're doing faithful things for these brothers that were strangers. So he was doing something for strangers. Who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. These are missionaries that were going throughout the world proclaiming the message of Jesus. And they didn't want to take money from anybody. So the only opportunity they had to be taken care of was for brothers in the church to welcome them into their homes and take care of them. And this is what Gaius was doing. Whenever a missionary rolled into town, he said, you come stay with me. I'll put you up and I'll feed you until it's time for you to go. This is what the apostles did when Jesus sent them out. Do you remember when he sent out the 70? He said, when you go into the house, stay in that house. Find a place where they'll take you and they'll put you up. And this is what Gaius was doing. And John tells him, that's a faithful thing. They're strangers. You don't know them. You just know they're brothers in Christ. And he said that in verse 6, they testified to your love before the church. This could be Ephesus. Some people have speculated other places. But if John was in Ephesus, they're sending out missionaries. The missionary comes back and he says, oh, we were in, I don't know, whatever city Gaius was in. We were in Athens. 
And John goes, Athens, did you meet Gaius? And they said, yeah, we met Gaius. Gaius put us up in his house. He was such a great guy. He has such love for the body of Christ. And John's like, I'm going to write Gaius a letter and thank him for doing that, for showing hospitality, love in the church. Let's talk a minute about hospitality. That's sort of a lost virtue today. We got other virtues that we're pretty good at. But hospitality, yeah, we're, we tend to be sort of protective, don't we? We kind of view our houses like cubicles a lot of times. It's like, if we want to talk, we'll go out here and talk. But don't bring it in here. This is where my stuff is. But hospitality is crucial to a Christian's life. And it is how we walk in love. And you know what 1 Peter 4.9 says? Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Why'd you have to add those last two words, Peter? I'll show hospitality to anybody. But at least let me complain about it a little bit. At least let me take somebody aside into the kitchen and say, can you believe this guy? They're just sticking around. They're not leaving. They just think they can do whatever they want. I just found them poking through the fridge last night. Show hospitality to one another, he says, without grumbling. Hospitality, that word in Greek is philoxenia. It comes from two words. Philos, which means friend. It also can mean friendly or brotherly love, but philos. And stranger, xenos, which is where we get the word for xenophobic, which is fear of strangers. So philoxenia means friendly to strangers. It's kind of funny. Sometimes we have trouble being hospitable to our friends. It's like, how about we go out to a restaurant this week? I don't want you in my house. But what about it's a stranger? I'm a Christian. Is that enough for you to put somebody up in your home? I'm preaching to myself a little bit here. The early church, remember in Acts chapter 2? When there was somebody that did not have a place to stay, that did not have food, that did not have money, they brought them into their house and it said nobody said anything that they had was their own. There's, there was no mine in the early church. It was ours. And this was not communism. This was just being neighborly. It wasn't like, okay, we're going to take everybody's stuff and then redistribute it. It was just, if you're in my house, help yourself, whatever. Make yourself at home. You ever been at somebody's house who was truly hospitable to you? Somebody who was going out of their way to serve you? I can brag on my, my great aunt Rita here a little bit. Aunt Rita is one of the most hospitable women I've ever met in my life. You go to her house and you feel welcome in that house. And it's not just because the food is really good, but she's going out of her way to find out what you need. Can I get you anything? Sit down. I'll take care of that. Do, do you know where everything is? Can I help you find it? Never wanting to impose on the person that's there and also never making them feel like they are imposing. Hospitality. It's a qualification for leaders in the church. 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.8 both say, when you're appointing elders, they better be hospitable. Because if you've got an elder in the church that says, I'll, I'll help, but I don't want you in my house. Like, what kind of elder is that? Look on this description that he says. He says, you have sent them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Hey, if Jesus came to visit, you'd probably get out the good plate, wouldn't you? The one that only has one crack down the middle. Yes, Jesus, yeah, you, you, take, you take the good bed. Don't worry, I'll sleep on the floor, whatever, no big deal. <laughs> in a manner worthy of God. He says that we do well when we do that. That's some serious selflessness right there. And this goes beyond just being fond for people. Oh yes, I love having guests. 
I also like it when they leave. That's not hospitality. Hospitality is allowing your home, your food, your time, your car, your resources to allow them to be used by another as if they were owned. Jesus said, give to everyone who asks of you. Well, does that mean everyone? Okay, let's just not worry about that right now. How about folks in the church? Can you let anyone in the church that needs help, will you help them? This is Christ-like right there. If you want somebody to imitate in your life, find somebody who is open with their house and their heart. Not somebody who can pencil you in every once in a while. Jesus told the story about the friend that shows up in the middle of the night knocking, right? And he says, are you going to turn your friend away? Some of us read that and go, I might turn my friend away if they showed up in the middle of the night. But Jesus is saying to love one another, even when it's inconvenient. If it's convenient, it's not really hospitality, is it? Inconvenience is our opportunity to show hospitality. And it seems that Gaius was doing this. He was allowing his house to be a base camp for missionaries. And word kind of got around, hey, if you're ever going through this town, hit up Gaius. He'll let you stay at his house. And then some of us hear that and go, don't tell people, because then more people might want to come to my house. They might think it's just open. But that's the kind of house we're supposed to have as Christians, to be open, especially with one another. And if you immediately run to, you mean I should be picking up homeless people and bringing them into my house? How about one step at a time? Just love the people in your church. Love the people in your neighborhood. Your kids' friends. I don't want that friend coming over. He never takes his shoes off. That was me when I used to go over to Paula Hemian's house. She had white carpets and she kept them very nice. And I had muddy shoes every day. She still let me come over, but I, I certainly was handed my share of... of uh, cleaning materials to clean up the mud that that red Virginia clay that I'd tracked into their house before. Find somebody who is going to be hospitable to you and then be like them. And John says when we do that for people who are in ministry, when you let that missionary crash on your couch, when you drive them to the airport, when you pick them up, when you send them a little extra money to help out, he says that you are being a fellow worker with them. That word is sunergos. Soon is where we get words like synthesis and synergy. Sin, it means with. And ergos is ergon or ergonomical. It means work. So work together. Fellow workers. It implies unity and equality. It means that when we help people who are serving the Lord, you become a partner in their labor, their blessing, and even their reward. Jesus said in Mark 9.41, Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. If you've ever found out that somebody was a Christian and then just decided to do something nice for them, the Bible says you're going to be rewarded for that. How awesome is that? There are a lot of people out there that are, you know, looking to take advantage of your hospitality. But, you know, even if it's being taken advantage of, the Lord sees that. The Lord sees your hospitality and your generosity and will bless you for it. And that's the character of Gaius. Faithful to the truth, and that led to him being faithful to the church as well. So if you want two little subpoints there, there you go. Faithful to the church, and first he was faithful to the truth. If you're looking for somebody to imitate, find somebody like that, who's devoted to the gospel and devoted to those in the church as well. Let's move on now, verses 9 and 10. I have written something to the church... But Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to 
and puts them out of the church. How about that? How would you like that to be the description about you? I'm gonna, I don't, don't be like Diotrephes. Which Diotrephes? Oh, you know the one that always likes to put himself first? Oh, yeah, that Diotrephes. I know who you're talking about. We don't want to be like that. This is the bad example. We had a good example in Gaius. We now have a bad example in Diotrephes, who is the opposite of Gaius. John mentions here a letter that he had written to the church in whatever city Gaius was in. It is possible that he's referring to 1 John or maybe even 2 John, but we really don't know, so it's pointless to speculate about it. Either way, he had written something. But when that letter got to this church, Diotrephes refused to allow it. And back then, as you see in some of Paul's letters, the protocol was you'd take it and you would read it out loud to the church. Not everybody was literate, and there's not very many copies to go around, so you'd read it out loud. Well, Diotrephes apparently was able to stop a letter from the Apostle John being read in the church. And he wouldn't allow other missionaries to come to the church. He does not like to acknowledge our authority. He refuses to welcome the brothers, and he stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. He says, if you welcome any other teacher from anybody else, I'm putting you out of this church. He wanted to ensure that he was the only one who had any say in that church. And I wish I could say that after John wrote this epistle, it was corrected and it never happened again. But, unfortunately, as many of you well know, there are still plenty of men and women, even in the church like this, who view the church as an organization that they can dominate and use it to gain power. It's funny, th this tends to happen, first of all, to small churches. A church our size, for example, one person can make a big difference, especially if they're persuasive and charismatic, or if they're just domineering and there are people that are ready to be led that way. If somebody comes in with a strong personality and starts taking things over to themselves, that can be a serious problem. It also happens in very, very large churches because a church can become a status symbol. And now you don't just have one guy, you have lots of people coming in and they're only there to get credibility for themselves. You know, all the politicians and the biggest businessmen will go there. Nothing wrong with that, but they're not going because they love Jesus. They're going because this is where everybody goes, and if they see me at church, it'll be good for my business. It'll be good for my re-election campaign. And that can change the culture of the church. And the church becomes obsessed with celebrity and finding what we can do to bring in more celebrities. And Pastors can begin to capitulate to that, and they change how everything is done. And next thing you know, the church has become another hierarchy for these people to climb. It's not so bad here as it is around the world, though. A story from one of our pastors in Nepal. There was one Christian, Christian, quote-unquote, pastor, who was in it for the politics. He figured he'd get the Christians to support him in politics, and he knew that these networks of pastors were a great way to kind of build up some grassroots support. And so he was going around all these churches and telling all these pastors they needed to support him in his campaign. Well, there was one pastor that said no. That pastor, when he was on his way to our conference, found himself accosted in the jungle, beat up, tied to a tree, and left for dead. It was like mafia church. It was like the, the mafia pastor in Nepal. And this guy ended up getting away, and he's okay now. But that kind of thing happens. There are men... That will do that. They say, hey, there's all these people. They all gather together to hear speeches a couple times a week. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to start giving some speeches and they'll listen to me. For some people, they don't even have anything that they want to do. They don't have any goal. They just want to be on top. At work, they're a loser. 
At school, they're losers. At home, their wife doesn't respect them. But they come to church, and they're going to push these people around until they get on top. Paul warned about this in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 30. He's talking to the elders in Ephesus, Acts 20, verses 29 through 30. And he said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things to draw the disciples after them. Did you see that? Outside and inside. There are going to be pastors, elders, teachers, home fellowship leaders, youth pastors, worship leaders who are just there to draw people away after them. And Paul warned about that. And I love that he said, after my departure, because nobody's got to mess with Paul face to face. But as soon as Paul leaves, then they'll step in and they'll do their thing. There are many churches, and I've known some pastors of these churches, who these churches are held hostage by one or two people. Maybe they've got a system of church government and it's in their bylaws that one person, well-placed, can wreck everything. And there are people that want to keep things a certain way, and then there's some people that they just like being able to mess things up. They like having the power to mess things up. They like that people have to come and ask their permission. They like the pastor to have to come and ask him what he wants and give approval of things. And, and there are places where even somebody you wouldn't think who maybe has no formal position, but they've just drawn everybody after them, and they can grind the ministry to a halt. That's not good. It can be done a couple ways. It can be done through fear-mongering, where people just get the church so afraid of everybody else, and I'm the only one that can help you. A lot of cults will do this. Everybody outside is bad. Everybody outside is evil. Even the ones that seem like they're on our team, they're really not. And every time you hear them say something bad about me, it's because they hate God. And I'm the only one that knows God. And you keep people so that they're under your thumb and they're scared to death to go anywhere else. Maybe they're just intimidating personalities. There are bullies in the pulpit. There are bullies outside the pulpit. There are people that will try to bully the pastor from the pew. You'll see this. Just by the way, they respond to things and shake their head. Or you know, I, I knew a guy that he was not a bully, but he would try to communicate to me when he didn't love some of the things I was saying. Because he just kind of shakes his head and he'd lean over and whisper to his wife and kind of look at me while I was doing that. And I'm like, what, you don't like it? And I was much younger then, so then I would like double down on what I was saying. And it's like, yeah. I've grown up a little bit since then. I'm sure he has too. But it happens. And sometimes it's just manipulation. Sometimes it's just guilt. You know, sometimes people will just say, well, if, I, I know that, that you might not feel so strongly about this, but I just, I, I, this pet project of mine, it just breaks my heart. And I, I know that you probably don't love them as much as I do. And, and they, well, hold on. I mean, I love, I love people. Well, I mean, but you're not really showing it, are you? And, you know, well, I'll, I'll pray for you that you, you come around. And it, there's all kinds of ways where people just want to get in the church and want to wreck stuff. What did Diotrephes gain by getting John out? He's going to totally exclude this congregation from the rest of the church. But that was fine with him. Because I don't care if the hill is this big. If I'm the one on top, I'm king of the hill. Titus chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Paul writing to Titus. And Titus was supposed to be appointing elders. So Paul is warning him about the kind of elder he should not appoint. He said, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers. You ever know an empty talker? They stand up and they speechify for four hours. And you're like, what did they even say? 
deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. How you like that, huh? Silenced because they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. You see this too, right? People show up in the church and they preach these messages with this weird twisted theology so that they can make some money out of it. And people fall for it. People fall for it over and over and over again to the tune of millions of dollars. The pastor's job is to remove and rebuke such people. And if I can pick on my own set for a minute here, Many pastors are scared. A lot of pastors are, are put into positions of authority when they're young. And so somebody comes in who is accustomed to pushing people around and the pastor just gets battered back and forth and they never learn how to successfully overcome that. Or a lot of times pastors, let's be real, can be bookish kind of guys, quiet kind of guys. They just want everybody to get along and be nice and be like Jesus. And so somebody shows up and they're not interested in any of that. And they've got that linebacker defensive tackle mentality and the pastor just is not ready for it. But my job and every other pastor's job is to get over it and to be tough and be strong. And I would encourage you, whatever congregation you're a part of, whether it's this one or any other, support your leaders. Support your pastors in what they know they ought to do. I've talked to pastors that are in the ministry, they're in the pulpit, but they feel stuck. They feel like they have no leadership, there's no control. All they do is stand up there and do a song and dance for him or her every week. Support them. Be there and make it, the Bible says, an easy thing for your leaders. Diotrephes was concerned with his name, his status, his influence. He did not love Christ. Jesus was a stepping stone for him. We all can be preoccupied with our own names if we're not careful. I've said this before, but it's so true. Maybe you went to a different church or you were in school or in your neighborhood or your social group, whatever it is. And there's just somebody there that kind of runs everything. Maybe they're not mean to you, but they're just kind of on top. Everybody likes them. She's really beautiful. She's really well-spoken. She makes nice money. And so everyone just kind of likes to be around her. And you kind of resent it in your heart a little bit. So then you come to a church and you're here and you're like, hey, she's not here. Now everybody kind of thinks that, that I'm up top a little bit and this is great. And then one day you show up to church and there she is. And you're like, no, that's how you know. That's how you know it's become about you. She can't be here. This is my thing. That's not good. I used to have to deal with this with our high school group because high schoolers are much less subtle than adults are. So it's very obvious. when they're like, what are you doing here? I thought you guys broke up. Oh, and you're still here. And I would say, guys, who cares? We're here for Jesus. We're not here for that kind of thing. That's being concerned with your own name. Or maybe the church is a network. It's networking. It's like going to a conference. You're going to hand out your business cards or artists and musicians will see the church as their outlet to spread their art and spread their music. And if the church is not going to let them, then they'll just move on and find one that will. It happens all the time. The church is not a network for your business. Can there be some of that? Yeah, but it better not be first. I've, I've known people like that that have showed up and there was one dude, I'll never forget it. He came and I was the worship leader back in Lynchburg, and he comes to me and says, hello, my name is whatever my name is, and here's my card. And he had this really slick business card made up, and it said, like, studio musician and audio producer, songwriter, you know, whatever. And he's like, you know, so I just came in. You know what? I, I love this church. I just feel called to be here. And the Lord has just spoken to me that I, I want to play on this worship team with you guys. And I said, great. We have a, a waiting period. 
But if you want to start coming to practices on Wednesday nights, then we're happy to let you come and look. It's, oh, great, that all sounds great, man. And he shows up, and he's got all his stuff on Wednesday night. And I told him, I said, so you know, I'm not really going to have you play. You're welcome to come and observe what we're doing. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's fine, totally fine. And so then practice is over, and he comes up, and I said, thank you for coming. How was it? Oh, it was great. So next week, do you think I can get up there and, and play some? I'm like, well, no, because he had just started coming. That was his first week at the church. I'm like, you're welcome to come and see what we do, but we really want to make sure that you're committed here. Oh, man, I'm committed, man. I'm committed. God's called me to be here. Great. Well, we'll see you next week. He didn't show up next week or the few weeks after that. And somehow it got back to me. I don't remember how, but like, oh, yeah, he's playing at church down the street. I'm like, really? Was, yeah, because he, he didn't feel called anything. <laughs> he just wanted to play. And so he was moving around town until he found somewhere that would let him play. That's not what church is all about. Give me a break. Maybe Jesus is just a path to your goals. You know, I'm trying to, trying to take control of my life, trying to get organized. I'm trying to get on top of things and better myself. And Jesus had a lot of good things to say. And it, there's good cultural value to being in the church. That's not what this is about, guys. It's about humility. If you come to church and everything is about you, you got it wrong. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Likeness of God. Death on a cross. The highest height to the deepest depth. That's humility. And you know, humility is not about downplaying yourself all the time, right? The opposite of diatrophies is not to go, well, I'm just no good and I'm nobody and I just don't know if I'm ever going to be able to overcome these troubles. Stop that. You're making people uncomfortable, first of all. And second of all, that's just as prideful as everything else. Because what are you doing? Let's be honest. When you do things like that, it's a prideful thing. Because what do you want people to say? Sort of like, gentlemen, when you first start dating a young lady and she gets herself all dolled up for the first date, and you show up and say, wow, you look beautiful. She goes, I look awful. She does not think she looks awful. She just wants to hear you say it again and again and again. And we do the same thing in church where we say, oh, just my life is terrible and I'm no good and I don't know Jesus and I can never, I can't stop sinning and I don't know how to pray. And, and you want people to go, oh, no, no, you're wonderful. You're great. And that's not humility. That's pride. It's just wrapped up in something different, right? The body of Christ is not a stepping stone. It's a family. You don't got to downplay yourself. Just don't worry about it. Don't worry about how you're viewed. Don't worry about your status. If you're up here, if you're down there, so what? Paul said, I know how to be exalted and I know how to be abased. Paul had a vision of heaven and he was stoned outside of Lystra. He knows everything and he says, I'm content with all that because it's in Christ Jesus. Don't try to make the church about you. That's what Diotrephes did and it was not good. Verses 11 and 12. So we've seen one good example, one bad example. Let's look at our third good example of what to imitate. Verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. This is our theme verse, so to speak. I think this is sort of the center of this whole book, what it's all about. Where we're told how to know whether or not someone is worthy of imitation. 
John always brings it back. Read his, read his gospel even, the, the teachings of Jesus that he chooses to emphasize, the epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, even in Revelation. He brings it back to obeying the commandments of Christ. John, the son of thunder, had no time for somebody who claimed to be a Christian and didn't keep any of his commandments. John 14, 21, Jesus said, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Oh, I love Jesus. Yeah, but you don't keep any of his commandments. Yeah, but I love Jesus. Jesus says, no, you don't. If you loved me, you'd do what I said. Trees are known by their fruit. And we are to be judges of a person's fruit, not just their words, not just the rep that they built up around themselves. Look at their life. What are they doing? How are they acting? When they get under pressure, do they lash out and scream at people? When they're not around or they think that nobody else is around, do they all of a sudden drop their guard and start acting in a way that causes you to blush? If somebody is talking about God all the time and seems really, really passionate about Jesus, man, but they constantly blow it big time, maybe that's not the person you should be imitating. And we love the flash in the pan. We love it when somebody is hopped up and excited and they're loud for Jesus. Nothing wrong with that. But they, they get going and we're like, look at this radical testimony. Get up and preach. Get up and sing. It's all wonderful. And then, boom, they crash. And we don't see them for a while. But then they're back. And now they're loud and they're excited. And they got a new testimony. Oh, get them on stage. Let them preach. And then, boom, they fall again. That's not the person you want to be imitating. The person you want to be imitating is the person who has been quietly plodding along in righteousness and follow them instead. Follow the person who's been plodding instead. In verse 12, we meet one of my favorite characters in the scripture. Believe it or not, Demetrius. The only other Demetrius in the Bible is in Acts 19, and he led a mob against Paul. And I don't think that would be the same Demetrius. Probably a different guy. There was a Roman god named Demeter. So there are a lot of male and female names that came out of that. So very common name. But in opposition to the bully Diotrephes, John tells Gaius to look to Demetrius. And the only thing we know about Demetrius is that he had a good testimony. We don't know any stories about him. We don't know if he was the one carrying this letter. We don't know if he had a position in the church. We don't know how old he was. We just know that he had a good testimony. And the scripture preserved that for us. That word for testimony is marturia. That's where we get the word martyr from. It means his life was a constant proclamation of the truth. Hey, are you being content with being known only as a Christian? That's the opposite of the Diotrephes mentality that wants to be known for something. Are you content with just being a Christian? Are you content with your tombstone just saying your name, the dates, Christian? Is that okay with you? Are you okay with other people in the church being exalted and honored while you remain obscure? Maybe somebody who's been a Christian less time than you? Maybe somebody that you discipled and now they're the ones being lifted up while you're staying down low? Are you okay with that? Do you remember in John 21 when Jesus told Peter how he was going to die? And Peter looked back at John and said, hey, Jesus, what about John? Jesus said to him, none of your business, Peter. <laughs> you follow me. He says, maybe I want John to live forever. Would you like that, Peter? Mind your own business. God requires many things of many people, but he requires every one of us first to follow him and maintain our testimony. Learn to be a Demetrius, you guys. That's what you imitate. Somebody who is just content with following Jesus, falling in love with him every day, staying in his word, abiding in him. Find somebody who maybe isn't so boisterous about their righteousness. 
That doesn't mean a type B personality. That means somebody who just isn't always every minute has got to be hopped up and talking about this stuff. Because a lot of times what you'll find is that that's going to burn out. And when that burns off, you have to see if there's anything left underneath it. Find somebody who is faithful and humble before the Lord. Jeremiah said to his scribe Baruch in Jeremiah 45.5, he said, Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. I want to be a Christian because I want to be a great man. You got the wrong religion, pal. Don't seek to be exalted. Don't seek to be famous. Don't seek to be loved by other people. Seek Jesus Christ and let him worry about the rest. Is there anything more embarrassing than watching a friend on Instagram who decided they wanted to be an influencer? And now they're putting all those lame things up online and those lame blogs and their breakfast is there every morning. It's so cringy, isn't it? And all these quotes that like, you know that they Googled like inspiring quotes and just put it up in front of like a picture of their cat or something like that. You're trying to get noticed. You're trying to be famous. You want people to retweet you and like your pictures and oh, you're such an inspiration to me. Don't do that. Christians are not into that. We don't care about status or reputation or being known. All we care about is being obedient to Christ. What can you tell me about Demetrius? Well, he's got a good testimony. Yeah, that, that's a godly man. Well, what else? I don't know. What else is there? He's got a good testimony. That was enough for the Lord. Verses 13 through 15. Let's bring it home. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. I think uh, 3 John 14 needs to be the theme verse of the quarantine 2020. <laughs> I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. John closes the letter promising to visit soon. He'd rather see him face to face. Once again, there's that genuine love. I don't want to write letters. Let's just go meet up in person. Romans 12 says, let love be genuine. And this is what John did. So the book of 3 John, two great examples and one terrible one. And we are told to imitate what is good. Cultivate in your life the simple faithfulness and love of Gaius and Demetrius. And don't allow the pride that Diotrephes had to grow in your heart. Examine your own life today. And maybe like, well, I know my heart's in the right place. Ah, forget your heart for a minute. Look at your actions. How are you living? I don't want to be like them. Well, are you kind of acting like them? I had a good friend back in the day that had his hair grown long, and he was all into music and rock and roll, and everyone was like, you're trying to be like him. And I was like, no, I'm not. And then you look at pictures of us back then, and I'm like, wow, I was like a clone of that guy. It's how so embarrassing. Don't be like that. Who are you imitating? Take control of your imitation and imitate Christ. Imitate godly people in your lives. Do what they do. I've got to make it my own. Okay, yeah, but you don't know how to do that yet. Start by doing what they do. As my old prof used to say, if you want what they got, you've got to do what they did. Center yourself on Jesus and find a godly person and be like them. And I hope that I can say to you, as it says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And I know that I mess up and I'm not doing it perfectly, but I'm following Christ. So if you need somebody to look after, look to me. Look to your pastor. And it's not just me. We should be able to say this for each other. I don't know how to pray. Well, come pray with me and let me teach you how to pray. I don't know how to evangelize. Well, come with me. Let me teach you how to evangelize. I don't understand doctrine. Let's spend some time together. But in the end, it all comes back to imitating 
the Son of God, Jesus Christ, doesn't it? We are disciples of Jesus, walking in His truth. And if we keep our eyes centered on Him, we're going to do just fine.